Welcome back to Dark, Dangerous, and Deadly. I'm your host, Bridget Marrero. Sticking with the Halloween theme, I figured I'd create a little list of some good movies for you. These movies are all based on real people or events. I hope you like it. Let's get into it. In 1981, the LA Times published an article about a large amount of Asian refugees who went to bed one night and never woke up. Almost all of the people that died were in their 20s and 30s. When autopsies were done, there was no evidence of foul play at all. It was as if they died of natural causes, except they were far too young for that. This event obviously scared a lot of people, especially children. One child in particular was so terrified by this event that he refused to sleep. He felt that if he was to go to sleep, that he may never wake up. His parents fought with him tirelessly to go to sleep, and they eventually got him to sleep. They left the room, and once he was asleep, he began screaming. His parents rushed back into his room to find him dead. He too was examined, and no cause of death could be found. This real story is what inspired Wes Craven to create A Nightmare on Elm Street. Next up is Sylvia Likens. Sylvia Likens was born January 3rd, 1949. She was the middle child, having two sets of twins born both before and after her. Her parents, her parents didn't have their lives together. They sold refreshments sometimes at local carnivals or stole whatever it was they needed. Occasionally, they would travel for work but they'd always leave Sylvia and her polio-stricken sister Jenny with their grandmother or other relatives. In 1965, Sylvia's parents decided to travel yet again for work and leave her and Jenny with Gertrude Benizewski. Gertrude's children went to school with the Likens kids, so it seemed like a good arrangement. Mr. and Mrs. Likens agreed to pay Gertrude $20 a week to care for their girls. The first two weeks were fine, but soon the payments started to show up late, and Gertrude would begin to beat the girls for it. This would eventually change to just beating Sylvia, and it quickly escalated into many forms of abuse against Sylvia, including but not limited to physical abuse, sexual abuse, sexual humiliation, mental abuse, basically any horrific thing a monster could do to a child was done to Sylvia. Gertrude didn't act alone though. All of her children participated along with some neighborhood kids. She was force fed and if she threw up, she'd have to eat that as well. She was beaten burned, cut, sexually assaulted with objects, starved, and was even forced to strip naked for everyone and masturbate with a glass bottle. Her beatings got worse as time progressed, resulting in Sylvia's death in October. Sylvia's story was turned into a novel in 1989 by Jack Ketchum, and then later became a movie titled The Girl Next Door which came out in 2007.
Edward Theodore Gein was born on August 27, 1906. As a child into adolescence, he would be described as strange. People often spoke of apparent laughing fits and that he uh, was antisocial. Uh, Gein claims, though, that his laughing fits were simply him making jokes up in his head that he found very funny, so he would just laugh about them. He also explains that it's not that he was antisocial, he just preferred to be alone. Uh, Gein was also obsessed with his mother. He later stated in an interview that she was, quote, the love of my life, end quote. Many people found his affection for his mother odd, including his brother Henry. Henry would often talk badly about their mother, which would enrage Ed. In 1944, Ed and his brother were burning over, I'm sorry, excuse me, burning some overgrown vegetation when the fire started getting out of control. The firefighters quickly had to come and put out the fire, and soon after, they found Henry's body. It wasn't burned, but it was ruled an accident. Mm -hmm. Later, an autopsy would determine that there was actually bruising on his skull, but Gein was never looked into for that. The following year, Ed lost his mother to natural causes, and now he was alone. With all the free time on his hands, he decided to start up a hobby. He would make wall decor, lampshades, clothes, and even cereal bowls. All from human skin and bone. He was caught in 1957 when Bernice Warden was reported missing by her son Frank. He had gone to check in on his mother at her store uh, where he found blood and a receipt for antifreeze purchased by Ed Gein. When authorities arrived at Ed's house, they saw Bernice's headless body strung up by her feet and being gutted. Gein was arrested, and when his house was searched, they found all of the items that he had made. Ed Gein's story would later be the inspiration for many movies, such as Deranged, Eaten Alive, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. Now, doing the research, this one really surprised me because I saw the movie that this case was based off of, but I never heard of the case. So, here we go. Elise Marie Poller was born April 24th, 1980. She was a devout Christian and described by many as sweet, loving. She was just a really great person. She had a lot of friends, but there were three that she hung out with frequently. Their names were Jacob, Joseph, and Royce. The three boys had a death metal band named Hatred, and apparently they worshipped Satan. But who knows for certain? They could just be using that as a scapegoat. But anyway, one day the boys convince Elise to come hang out with them and smoke some weed. When they get her alone, they strangle her with a belt, stab her multiple times, and once she dies, they rape her. 
and dump her body, often returning to it to rape it again and again. It's fucking disgusting. Royce then becomes a Christian and confesses everything to his priest. The police obviously were then notified and all three boys were arrested. When asked why they did it, they said it was a sacrifice to Satan so they could get, quote, craziness to go professional, end quote. They were sentenced to 25 years to life. This horrible, senseless murder became the inspiration for the movie Jennifer's Body. And also, um, Elise's parents tried to sue the, the group that death metal group uh, Slayer because these fucking people decided that it was Slayer's music that inspired them to kill Elise. Like, no, dude, that was all you. That has nothing to do with any music that you listen to. That was your decision. Stop blaming the music. Okay, next. Now, although the next one doesn't necessarily involve murder, uh, the movie itself is amazing. So, um, yeah, definitely, I needed to put this one in here because I love this story, the true story, and um, and I was always amazed by it as a kid. My one of my friends and I, we like just were super obsessed with this when we were younger. So. Let's get into it. Sarah Winchester was born in 1840. She was very wealthy. She intended, attended the best schools. She had the best of everything. She even married into a fortune, the Winchester fortune. Sarah's life seemed perfect. Um, soon after marrying, she had a daughter. So life seemed great. But sadly, her daughter would die, and not too long after, her husband would die, leaving Sarah all alone. Some people say she lost her mind. Uh, she often consulted with mediums and claimed that the victims of the Winchester rifles needed to be appeased and that they were after her. She began to pour all of her money into the house. She would create rooms hidden in closets and mirrors, stairs that led to nowhere, windows in the floor. Some say that she did it to confuse the ghosts. She was also rumored to never sleep in the same room twice. Sarah died in 1922 without having finished her house. The house still stands today, pretty much the way that she left it, except there was, um, I think there was an earthquake. Uh, I don't know what year that was, but I know the earthquake ruined like the top portion of the house and they had to have it removed. But um but yeah, so it's still there. It's at 525 South Winchester Boulevard, San Jose, California, and it's open to the public. Um it's definitely been on my bucket list for many years. Uh, the Winchester story was the main inspiration for Rose Red and the Diary of Ellen Rinbauer. 
both adapted from Stephen King books. And I know that there's like a also uh, a new movie called Winchester or something like that. And I believe that's on Netflix. That's also obviously based on the Winchester um, mansion. Although I didn't watch that one. So I don't know how like how accurate it is. But I know that the Rose Red obviously is a it's a horror movie. Um, but it is fantastic. And obviously, you know, it's Stephen King. But I definitely would suggest that that would be a Halloween watch for you because I guarantee that you will like it. Danny Rowling was born May 26, 1954. He had a super rough childhood, raised by a police officer father who was far from a hero. Danny's father was physically, verbally, and mentally abusive to Danny's mother, his siblings, and Danny himself. As Danny got older, he started showing a ton of behavioral issues that landed him in jail. He would often get arrested for stealing, uh, anywhere from stealing to peeping into windows as women undressed. He was a problem. As an adult, he hopped from job to job and had no friends. When Danny was around 36, he attempted to kill his father, but he failed. And his father wound up living, but lost an eye and an ear in the process. What sparked this attack is unclear, but one thing was certain. It was, the, it was only the beginning. Within the same year, Rowling began to break into apartments around college campuses in Florida. He robbed and murdered five students. After killing them, he mutilated their bodies. Four out of five victims were women. The women were posed in sexually explicit ways post-mortem. He even severed one girl's head and placed it directly across the body so that she could ex uh, I'm sorry, so that she could essentially see herself. Rowling would also be tied to at least three more murders. He pled guilty and was executed October 25, 2006. Danny Rowling's murders, murder spree became the biggest inspiration behind the character Ghostface for 1996's movie Scream. Next up is Teresa Jimmy Francine Noor. She was born on March 14, 1946. Teresa's early life was relatively normal, although she claims that her father often took out his frustrations on her and her siblings, but they don't really go into many, I'm sorry, much detail on what that exactly means. Um, but anyway, this made her very close to her mother. But sadly, her mother would die when she was in her 20s. As an adult, she had a hard time maintaining relation, relationships. She jumped from man to man, having many children along the way. She struggled with alcoholism, and that would lead to her abusing her children. After her last relationship failed, she became even more abusive. She forced her, her children to stay in the house, essentially holding them captive. They had no phone 
and were not allowed visits from anyone. That includes any of families, anything like that. Just no one. She would be drunk, drunk around the clock, often beating and torturing her children for no reason other than her desire to do so. None of her children were safe from her abuse. But her two oldest daughters, Susan and Sheila, saw the worst of it. Teresa was convinced that Susan was a witch. So to punish Susan, she would not only beat her, but she, she forced the rest of the children to beat her as well. Susan ran away once, and when the police found her, she told them about the abuse. Teresa denied any abuse and claimed that Susan had mental issues. The police believed Teresa and released Susan into her care. In 1982, Teresa accused Susan of casting a spell on her that made her gain weight. You heard that right. Teresa was gaining weight, and she was convinced that it was because of Susan. Susan obviously denied having done so, but Teresa did not believe her. Teresa shot Susan and left her for dead in a bathtub. Eventually realizing that it wasn't fatal, she ordered the kids to nurse her back to health. In 1984, Teresa argued with Susan again, and it led to the stabbing and led to her stabbing Susan with a pair of scissors. At this point, Susan had enough of the abuse and said she was going to move to Alaska. Teresa said that she could go, but she needed to remove the old bullet so that it couldn't be traced back to her. Susan would do anything to leave, so she agreed. Teresa then drugged Susan, and once she was knocked out, she forced Susan's 15-year-old brother to do the operation. Using only an X-Acto blade, he extracted the bullet from within Susan's body. Susan awoke some time later in an immense amount of pain. Soon, an infection started to become very apparent. Teresa decided to treat it with antibiotics and Tylenol, but it didn't work. Teresa noticed that she was dying, so she packed all of Susan's belongings and put them in a car along with Susan. Teresa had her two sons help her bring Susan to Squaw Valley, and they dumped her belongings on the side of the road, and then they put Susan on top. Teresa then covered everything with gasoline and lit it. She was still alive when she was set on fire by her own fucking mother. In May 1985, now with Susan gone, Sheila became her primary focus. She forced Sheila to become a prostitute. But soon after, she became convinced that Sheila was pregnant and that she had H, uh, sorry, H, <laughs> STDs. She claimed that she contracted Sheila's STD from the toilet. Yeah. Sheila denied both accusations, so Teresa beat her and locked her in a hot closet. She refused to allow anyone to open the door or give her anything to eat or drink. In June of 1985, 
Sheila died of dehydration, and it would be three days before anyone realized she was dead. Her body was obviously decomposing, filling the house with the horrendous stench. Teresa had ordered her two sons to, again, get rid of the body. The boys put their dead sister in a box and dumped her by the airport. She then removed all of the family's belongings from the house and had her daughter set the house on fire in an attempt to cover up the evidence. Teresa then fled, leaving her now adult children to fend for themselves. Her daughter immediately went to the police and told them of both murders. Teresa's confessions spread, um, spared her the death penalty, and instead she received two life sentences. She will be eligible for parole in 2027. This was the inspiration of the 2010 movie titled The Afflicted. Now, just a quick little note, because I thought that this was like the best, the, like the greatest part of this entire horrible story, is that when she had the daughter set the house on fire, you know, she set it on fire because she wanted her, you know, she wanted to get rid of all the evidence, right? But the only part of the house that did not burn was the closet. And that's how they were able to collect, you know, all of the evidence that they needed against this fucking bitch. But isn't that crazy? She had her daughter set the house on fire to burn the evidence that was in the closet, except the closet didn't burn. Everything else did but the closet. Crazy, right? Like always, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember, my email is darkdangerousanddeadly at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash darkdangerousanddeadly. And you can find me at on Instagram at darkdangerousanddeadlypodcast. Thanks for hanging out with me. Stay creepy, my friends. Peace.